7, and came and rolled the stone and, and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook as for fear for of him, and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come and see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they shall see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money <coughs> and they did as they had been instructed. And this story has, was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And I'll pray. God, we again just thank you for all that you've accomplished for us through your son, Jesus. It's truly a finished work. We thank you that Jesus lives and for the hope and the confidence that we have because of that. Thank you that he lives to save us and he lives to intercede for us. That he is a living God and that our hope is not misplaced. We pray that as we look at your word again this morning that you would strengthen us, God, work in us for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in the last chapter here now of Matthew, and um, obviously it's about the resurrection. One writer said, Christianity without the resurrection is not simply Christianity without its final chapter. It is not Christianity at all. I don't think we could begin to comprehend the, the range of emotions these disciples were feeling at this time, where they had been discouraged, maybe we could say depressed beyond anything they had ever experienced before, that when they saw Jesus hanging on that cross, their hopes were completely extinguished. It appears that not one of them remembered what Jesus had said on at least three occasions, that he would rise again, that he would be crucified and he would rise again. They, they, this, this, the, the reality of what they were looking at, Jesus hanging on the cross, just extinguished, it seems, any thought that he was going to rise from the dead. And so when he did rise from the dead, the swing in emotions, here their hope has been restored, he's alive, he's not dead, I don't know that we could, we could comprehend it. Some of you like surprises. I'm always surprised when somebody tells me they like surprises. The students and my grandchildren think I like surprises. They are mistaken. Um, they, they sometimes will hide in my truck and wait for me to get in, and then they yell, and they think, oh, it's so funny, Charlie just had a heart attack. <laughs> One of these times, I won't show up on Sunday, and it'll be their fault. 
This is a surprise that they should have anticipated, and yet they didn't. Um, I, I can remember a couple of times being in a hospital and um, having no real reason to expect any good news and being surprised with good news. And what a joy that is. We had a staff member years ago that had an accident at his hill, and he fell on a piece of wood, a one-by-one one piece of wood that was um, 15 inches long. And it um, went up into his body um, from, from his backside, and we didn't know how much of it was in him. We just knew that this was really bad. He was airlifted to San Antonio, and I walked into the emergency room with his wife, and one of the doctors sat down with us, and a team of surgeons was already prepped and ready for him to arrive. And the doctor that was meeting with us said, at the minimum, he will have a colostomy for the rest of his life. Very likely, he is severed in an artery, and when we pull that stick out of him, he will bleed out. We have a team of seven surgeons standing ready to, to operate on him. He had also had a kidney removed when he was a child, and so if the stick went deep enough to go to where the one good kidney was, he would have lost his kidney as well. And so we are waiting anxiously um, outside the, the operating room, and after a, a long period of time, the wife said, I've just got to go down there and see what's going on. And so she walked down the hallway to the, to the operating room and stood outside the door. And one of the nurses inside saw her and came out. And we're watching this from a distance. And all we could see was the wife fall over the nurse crying. And the nurse crying. And we just thought, oh, Lord, he's gone. And she came back to us and just tears in her face. And she said, they pulled the stick out, it was 12 inches inside of his body, and it did absolutely no damage whatsoever. And so they've opened him up, and they've looked, and they're making sure that there's no damage, there's nothing, there is no bleeding, there is nothing. And it went on into the side of his body where the kidney was missing, and so it didn't do any damage to his one good kidney. It's a miracle. Talk about a swing in emotions, thinking he's gone, to where there is nothing wrong. I begged his wife to save the stick and frame it. <laughs> now they wish they had. <laughs> that is nothing what I just described, that swing of emotions as to what these disciples are going through. Truly, all their hope was in Jesus. They could not have been more fully invested in him. They had left everything to follow him. And now he's crucified. And then on the third day, he's alive. Amazing. So as we look at some of the details here, it's, it's just so straightforward. And again, Matthew doesn't embellish anything. He doesn't want us to, to miss the simplicity and the profoundness of what is taking place here. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, so this is early Sunday morning, the Sabbath is Saturday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the other Mary, we're told in chapter 27, verse 56, was Mary the mother of James and Joseph, so not Mary the mother of Jesus. They came to look at the grave. And when they got there, a severe earthquake had taken place, 
For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And they saw this, and his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards saw it, and they shook for fear because of him, and they became like dead men. So whether they were just paralyzed in fear or whether they had actually passed out, we don't know. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Now at the garden tomb in Jerusalem, where there is a, the non-traditional site of Christ's burial and resurrection called the garden tomb, it's run by believers Beautiful place. There's a wine press that's there, a little bit of a vineyard, um, some olive trees, and, they, and this cliff, white limestone um, face. And in it was, is an actual tomb from this period. And the big stone that's rolled off to the side, and they have a sign above the doorway. He is not here. He is risen. It is such a powerful sight. It's worth going to Israel just to see that garden tomb. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, (laughs) wake up. And like I said, at least three other times in Matthew alone, Jesus said, I will be crucified and I will rise again. Just as he said, what other person in history has prophesied their death and their resurrection? This is clearly a demonstration of his deity. Paul makes that exact point in Romans chapter 1 where he says that he is declared with power to be the Son of God by virtue of his resurrection. If God God wants us to know who Jesus is and his exclamation point on who Christ is is the resurrection. If a person will not believe that Jesus is the Son of God based upon the empty tomb, then what will they believe? There is no greater emphatic statement, declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ than the empty tomb. Just as he said. And then the angel goes on and says, come, see the place where he was lying. So he invites the women to come into the tomb and see what he's talking about. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Now, if Matthew were making this up, if he had just fabricated this entire story, he would not be telling us of women who were the first witnesses. Because in in a Jewish court of law, a woman witness had no standing whatsoever. So this was not fabricated in order to convince us of something that didn't happen. He took the most unlikely part of the story, but it was the essential part of the story, that Jesus first appeared to women. He's not trying to convince us of something that isn't true. He's simply relating the historical facts as they occurred. The first people who saw Jesus rise from the dead were women. And Matthew does not hide that fact. And so they departed quickly. And they, they went from the tomb with fear and great joy to tell the disciples 
what they had seen and heard. And while they were leaving, Jesus met them and greeted them. I appreciate it. I was looking at the Bible Knowledge Commentary yesterday, and the author there for the commentary section on, on, on Matthew noted that there are 10 different times that Jesus appeared at his resurrection. 10 separate appearances that took place. This is one of them. And then so Jesus appeared to them. He took hold of their, they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus didn't say, don't worship me. In one of the other accounts, he did say, stop clinging to me. But he did not tell these women to stop worshiping him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren, brethren, to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. They didn't go right away. We know that. They stayed. They lingered. And Jesus appeared to them. It's one of the ten appearances. And then they finally make their way to Galilee. Jesus appears again. And then they're going to make their way back down to Jerusalem. <coughs> and they'll be there um, at, the, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given to them. And they will be in Jerusalem when Jesus arrives, uh, ascends from the Mount of Olives. So these are the basic Details here, straightforward, unembellished, to the point, facts that cannot be disputed. And in it all, we see that, that Matthew, in a very measured way, is simply trying to get across the, the most important points so that we can see that our faith is grounded in history. Francis Schaeffer loved that point. If he emphasized anything, he emphasized the historicity of our faith. It is grounded in history. It is not built on myth or fable, folklore. It is grounded in history. And each of the things that Matthew has, has given here, impossible to refute them. And so when the priest came up with this fanciful story that the guards had fallen asleep, you can just shoot holes all in it. Has, it can't hold water. Verse 11 now, while they were on their way, the women going to the disciples, at the same time, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. There's two schools of thought on who the guard was. The most common view is that it was a Roman guard. But there's also the view that it was the temple guard. And that would have been why Pilate said to, to, to the Pharisees, you have a guard. Go do what you need to do. That he may have saying, you have your temple guard, use them. That would help to explain why these men weren't executed. Because if a Roman guard lost a prisoner, even if the prisoner was a corpse, they were all to be executed. And these men were not executed. We know that in Acts, when a similar incident happens and they lose a prisoner... All those guard, all those soldiers will be executed. These men were not. It may explain why they went first to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin council. But they also say here, we will win over the governor, being Pilate. And so that kind of puts the light back on maybe this was a Roman guard. We don't know, but we know they're in big trouble, and they know it. They expected to be punished, even to be killed, because the prisoner, the corpse of Christ's body is gone. 
So they told the Pharisees, they told the Sanhedrin council. Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money. You can be sure it was more than 30 pieces of silver to to the soldiers. They bribed them and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is to this day. What's the problem with the story? If they were sleeping, number one, how do they know who took the body? They were asleep. Supposedly, but the disciples took the body, that's a big problem. If they were asleep, they don't know what happened to the body. The disciples were too afraid to stay with Jesus when he was arrested. Where do they get the new courage to steal his body from a guarded tomb? They had no courage at his arrest. Why could we, would we assume they have newfound courage now to steal his body? And what purpose would it serve? Grave robbing, in addition, was punishable by death. They were hiding because they didn't want to die, and now they're robbing a tomb which was punishable by death. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The disciples were never prosecuted for robbing the grave. And in Acts, they are brought before the Sanhedrin Council for healing people, preaching in the name of Jesus, but they are never accused of robbing the grave. Never prosecuted for this. The body was never found. All that would have had to happen to end this story of the resurrection and to prove that it wasn't true was, was produce a body. The body was never produced. And in addition, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that literally hundreds of people saw Jesus alive from the dead. He appeared to people for 40 days. And on one occasion, more than 500 people were present when that took place. The evidence far surpasses anything that would lend itself toward doubt. Many people have researched this with a skeptic's eye, seeking to disprove it, only to come to faith in Christ. One of the best known books, I haven't read it, is called Who Moved the Stone? And it was written by a guy who did not believe in the resurrection, and the more he examined it, he had, to, he, he, he had no escape except to say it is true. Jesus has risen from the dead. I heard one person say one time, there is more evidence for the resurrection than there is that Alexander the Great ever walked the earth. Pretty amazing. An early um, church father wrote and said, thinking over what is happening here and how the Jews are treating Jesus and responding to Jesus, he says, the Jews used treachery to lay hold of Jesus. They used illegality to try him. They used slander to charge him. And they used bribery 
to silence the truth about him. Treachery, illegality, slander, bribery. To dismiss the obvious. Does it remind you of anything going on today? (laughs) Should we be surprised that people in power resort to these things? If it threatens their power, they are not above treachery, illegality, slander, and bribery, even murder. And these are the religious leaders. These are the people that you would think would be the last people in power to abuse their authority. So we should not be surprised when people in power from both political parties abuse their authority. Doesn't mean we should just be passive about it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. Patsy and I went out to dinner Friday and we took um, two of the grandkids with us, Weston and Ford, and I don't know why, but the conversation turned to what happens to us when we die. So I was trying to explain that to the boys, and, and um, as we were leaving, just across the aisle from us, a lady uh, said, I was listening to you. Well, I just thought I was talking to my grandsons. And she goes, people don't have hope today. And what you were telling those kids, people need to hear. Well, good for you. What do we know about life after this life, based on this passage? Well, Scripture tells us, not based on this, but extrapolating to what other Scripture does say, that all, and all means all, all will be raised. Every single human being is going to be raised. I, if you've heard me officiate, speak at a funeral, you know you've, you've heard me say probably more than one on one occasion. There are only three possibilities of what happens when a person dies. Just three. One is you're annihilated. Nothing. You just go from, from present to gone. There is no, there is just, you're gone. The other is reincarnation. You might be a person now, you might be an elephant next time. Or an ant, mosquito, or you might be a king, reincarnation. And the third is resurrection. Those are the only three possibilities. So if you just think reasonably about those three possibilities. Can any, is there any evidence whatsoever for annihilation? None. Is there any evidence whatsoever for reincarnation? Can it be proven? None. Cannot be proven. But the resurrection, it's the only other possibility And there is historical proof of the resurrection. So for a person to put their faith in annihilation, or for a person to put his or her faith in reincarnation, requires greater faith than to place your faith in that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. It's as simple as that. 
all will be raised. And the Bible tells us there are two kinds of resurrection. There is a resurrection unto life, and there is a resurrection unto death. It's one or the other. So it is true that when a person dies, all people will be immediately in the presence of God. But it's not true that they will stay there. Because the Bible says, is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes what? Judgment. And so there will be a judgment. For those who died not having placed their faith in Christ, the Bible tells us that judgment comes at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. And it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. And every person who died without placing their faith in Jesus will stand before the throne of God and they will be judged according to how they lived their lives, but principally based on what they did with Jesus. And from that point, they will get what God determines they deserve in the context of the lake of fire. The Bible calls it the second death. The first death is when we die physically. But the second death is to spend an eternity in separation from God. Now, if I can believe what Jesus said about his own resurrection, I should have no trouble in believing him what he says about my resurrection, our resurrection. If he stated that he would die and rise again and it was true, I would be a fool not to believe him when he speaks about the other resurrection that is coming. The resurrection unto life is for those who have placed their faith in Christ and are saved. And just like it sounds, they will be raised unto life. And they will spend all eternity with Him. The resurrection will be a physical resurrection of our bodies. But the body will be changed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the that the mortal will put on immortality. The corruptible will put on the incorruptible. Can't wait for that. A glorified body. The same exact body. It was Jesus' physical body that was laid to rest in the tomb, and it was the same body which was raised. It looked different, I would hope, but it was the same body. And we will be raised... Recognizable, but different. Jesus said, so if we are raised according to the likeness of Christ's body, then we can expect that our resurrection will mirror His. So He said of His own body, He says, I am not a ghost, I am not a spirit. He says, touch and see. Spirits do not have have." Um, you can't touch spirits like you can touch me. And he says, I am flesh and bone. Interestingly, he didn't say flesh and blood, but flesh and bone. It would appear that his physical body was no longer animated by blood, but rather by the Spirit of God. And his blood had been shed and not restored to him. 
And it could very well be that our bodies will be the same. They will be without blood. We don't know. But we know that we will be raised in the likeness of his resurrection. His raised body was incorruptible, imperishable, immortal, glorious, and so will ours. You will never look better than when you have your resurrected body. Amen to that. As good looking as you are now, there'll be no comparison to your resurrected body. Nobody's going to be bald. Nobody's going to be overweight. Nobody's going to be tall. (laughs) What a glorious day that will be. Spiritual body and yet physical. Heavenly body and yet suited for the earth. Recognized from the old body and yet totally different. And it will be a sexual body. We will not be marrying and having babies because our marriage will be to Jesus. But nonetheless, our body will be a sexual body. Because that's how God created us to be. Male now, male in your resurrected body. Female now, female in your resurrected body. To the glory of God. It's going to be wonderful. But what does all this mean? That's all interesting and great and we can look forward to it. And by the way, we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. That is a temporal place. That is an intermediate place. We're going to spend eternity on the new earth. I look forward to that. I can't think how I would enjoy heaven, except it'll be not here. (laughs) That'll be good. (laughs) But to think of a new earth where everything is as it should be, that'll be wonderful. That's something we can start to get our minds around. It truly will be paradise. But the real implications and joy of the resurrection for us really center around simply relationship. My faith is not in a good teacher and what he taught. My faith is not in the teachings of Jesus. My faith is in Jesus. And it is a personal relationship with him. It is not creedal, though I accept the creeds and thank God for the good work that was done in articulating and defining our theology and what we believe. It's so important. But it was never meant to take the place of a personal relationship with Jesus. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have life. They bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me. Jesus said one of the last things he said before he was rejected. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you together the way a hen gathers her chicks. And yet you are unwilling. Come to me. Come to me, he said. All who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Everything about the life of Christ on this earth was about relationship. And the resurrection 
establishes that. It is on the basis of the resurrection that I know that my prayers are heard. Because Romans tells me he lives to make intercession for me. It is on the basis of the resurrection that I know that I can live this life. Because Romans also says he lives to save me. I am saved from my sin because he died for me and paid for my sin. But he lives to make my salvation experiential. A daily reality that Christ is this day my life, my hope, my strength, my Savior. I think this is why Paul said to the, to the Corinthians, people who are already saved, behold, this is the day of your salvation. Because he knew it is to be a living reality, not just a historical reality. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, death has lost its sting. And we as Christians know that better than anyone in the world. In fact, we're the only ones who really, really know that. That we can look forward to death because absent from the body is to be in the presence of God. As Paul says, I prefer to be with the Lord. And he was not depressed. He, was, he didn't have a death wish. He's just reality. I would prefer to be with the Lord. But because it is more necessary for your sakes, I will remain. My daughters told me to stop talking about dying. And I understand. My grandfather, my dad's dad, probably for 10 years before he died, at least, Every time we'd leave his house, they lived down in Harlingen, and we would say goodbye, and it was always, adios, amigos, the only two Spanish words he knew. <laughs> and then he'd say, you know, I may not be here next time you come down. This may be my last time to see you for 10 years. He did that. But it was actually a blessing because it prepared us. And we knew, without him ever talking about Jesus, we knew he wasn't afraid of dying, which spoke of his relationship. He was, his hope was not in reincarnation, and his hope was not in annihilation. There was a real hope. Because Christ lives, we have a living hope. We, too, will be raised, and we will be with him. Because Christ is raised from the dead, and there is a resurrection for you and I, there is no good reason to fear man. As Jesus said, what can they do to you? They can destroy the body. But fear God, who can destroy the soul. And he will not destroy our souls. Because again, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have passed from judgment into life, he says in John chapter 5. So there's no good reason to fear man. I'm speaking to myself because I have fear in me. But to think of what is the worst that somebody could do to us, it's nothing. Because death has lost its sting. 
we will be with him. But one of the things that we should appreciate most about the resurrection is the simple fact that the command of God to be holy, to be righteous, the command of God is now wed to the indwelling life of God. Jesus says, after he was he, he's, he, hadn't, he hadn't died and, and, um, and risen again, but anticipation of it, he said to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away. I can't send the helper, the Holy Spirit, unless I've gone away. And now, God's standard for us is no less than what it was before Jesus came and lived, died, and rose again. It has always been Holiness. That has never changed. God has not lowered the bar. But now, Jesus lives to fulfill the standard. Again, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that this, by the Spirit, the demands of the law are fulfilled. The command of God is now wed to the indwelling power of God. And because of that, the invisible God becomes visible in our humanity. He is literally incarnating himself in each of us who have placed our faith in Christ. Just as Jesus was God incarnate, he is God incarnating himself in and through each of us because he has been raised from the dead and he has given his spirit to indwell us that we might be the image of God both in essence, ontology, how He has made us in our being, but also truly imaging God because the Spirit of God lives in us to restore us to full humanity. It is incredible what God has done. Did these people grasp that at the time? I'm sure they didn't. Just as we spend a lifetime understanding the full implications that Christ is alive. But did it change their lives? Absolutely. You look at the sermons that the Peter and, and, and Paul and Stephen and all of them in, in Acts, they just have one thing to talk about. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. And if it wasn't true, why were they willing to give up their lives for it? Every single one of them were persecuted, and 10 of the 11 were martyred, according to church history. Only John didn't lose his life testifying to the risen Jesus. And he was persecuted like the others. This is the best surprise than anybody could ever have. That the one in whom they place the totality of their hope is alive. It's not to be a surprise for you and I. It is good news. It's the greatest news there is. Our Savior lives. And it is to be His life, His person, is to be the governing reality of everything we do 
every thought we have, every decision we make. This is not all there is. And for most of us, even as Christians, we are sadly living life, making decisions as though this is the only life there is. And it is not. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 has that very familiar verse where he says, bad company corrupts good morals. That verse, that statement comes in one of the longest chapters in all the Bible and it's about the resurrection. I believe Paul's point simply is too many Christians live as though Jesus is dead. They are Christians but they're living as though this life is lived without Christ. And we are just waiting to that time when we go to heaven. And Paul describes them as bad company. And bad company corrupts good morals. It's in that same paragraph there where he says, why do we suffer like we do? If this is all there is, and he's talking to Christians, if this is all there is, then why not eat, drink, and be merry? But the reality that Jesus lives and we will be with him in glory governed everything Paul did and said, every decision that he made. And it should be no less true for each of us. Christ lives and we will be with him. Everything, every word, every action, every decision should be governed by the reality of his life. And this is not all there is. We will be with him. I'll close us in prayer. God, I do thank you for these, again, profound but simple truths. They're not hard to understand. They're not hard to grasp. And the reality of them is undeniable. So easily proved. And I thank you, God. I, I trust that, that we all here in this room have believed that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And that in believing in him, we receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of Jesus himself. But I do pray, God, that increasingly we would be governed and we would not be like those in this world who live only for this world, but that we would be governed, God, in every thought, word, action, decision that we make by the reality that Jesus lives and he lives in us and we will be with him in glory. Strengthen our faith. Encourage us, God, as we are so tempted to be discouraged and depressed and to think, to act as though this world is all there is. We, we, we want to have your heart for this world. We want the world to move from darkness to light. But I pray that we would not become so focused on the world, God, that we're not thinking of eternity. Thank you for your ministry to us. Thank you for Jesus who gave himself for us and who rose again from the dead, just as he said he would do. In Christ's name, amen.